With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of August 3rd, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell upholding his own suspension of Patriots quarterback Tom Brady and the looming possibility that a federal judge will decide when Brady next takes the field. We'll also discuss the New York Mets' very strange week, with the team going from a laughing stock that made its own shortstop cry to a first-place team and baseball's darlings in the span of a few days. And finally, we'll talk to four-time Olympic gold medalist Greg Louganis about a new documentary on his life, Back on Board, which premieres on HBO this Tuesday night. After taunting us with his presence last week, Stefan Fatsis is off in Reno playing Scrabble, which is such a cliche excuse to get time off from your sports talk radio gig. After 14 games at the 2015 North American Scrabble Championship, Stefan is 7-7 seven and seven in Division II, and his daughter, who you may remember for her love of Megan Rapinoe's goal celebrations, is 9-5 and five in Division Three. You can follow the progress of the Fatsis family at ScrabblePlayers.org. They're halfway to the Manson family because Skelter is legal in Scrabble, but Helter is not. Joining me from New York is a member of the famed Pesca family, Mm -hmm. whose motto is Mets, Jets, Isles. It's Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. Hello. I would just have you know that Stefan once played a bee in Reno just to make lead bleed. (laughs) Best I could do the on third, short notice. If you come up with anything else, just in a random point during the show, yeah. let's pipe up. Uh, the third man in the ring today. You may know him as the host of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. He's also been touted by all the tip sheets as the favorite to replace Colin Cowherd in the 10 to 1 slot on ESPN Radio. <laughs> it's Broadway Steve Metcalf. Hello, Steve. Hey, Josh. Uh, I just want to say for the record, I've never been 9 and 5 in anything. Um, that would be a strong first 14 games for the New York Jets in any season. Mm-hmm. I think we yeah, can all no, agree on that. I mean, I mean personally, but neither any team I've ever rooted for. So <laughs> I'm really a seven and seven guy. I'm happy to be at seven and mm-hmm. seven. In our uh, bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, I think by that point in the show, Steve, we're just going to have exiled you. You're going mm-hmm. to be kind of a 500. You're going to be out of playoff contention. We're going to bring in Slate legend June Thomas who will be here to talk to us about her love of the Olympics and whether... The dem- Sluggo. You're pinch hitting <laughs> with, slu- with Sluggo. Deep opposite field power. I love it. She's going to be talking about the feces and the water in Rio. You really need deep opposite field power when you're talking about <laughs> Rio water feces. <laughs> also the demise of Boston's 2024 bid. Designated hitter, June Thomas. To hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen, 
and other slate shows, including the Culture Gab Fest, where you can hear Steve Metcalf, Broadway Steve Metcalf. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangup plus. You can get a free two-week trial at slate.com slash hangup plus. All right, Steve, we're going to start the show with a a close reading. You might be familiar with the term close reading from grad school. We're going to do mm-hmm. a close reading of your personal Facebook page. You've made 34 <laughs> posts to your personal Facebook page this year. The first two were updates to your profile photo. First, you went with the phrase, Je suis Charlie, at the appropriate time, after the Charlie Hebdo shooting. Right. Then you went, post number two, image of the book cover of Vladimir Nabokov's Panin. Um, mm-hmm. That, that mm-hmm. was True. Facebook update number two. 31 of the next 32 were either links to or quotes from stories, some written by yourself, about the scurrilous <laughs> behavior of the Patriots vis-a-vis deflating footballs. One written by myself, Josh. Okay, One, <laughs> but to, not to be fair, Charlie Abdu that did, was a false plural. Charlie Abdu did have those series of uh, Patriots cartoons, so there was some overlap. <laughs> so I, I've only mentioned yeah, thirty-one, and the, and the middle third of Vladimir Nabokov's mm-hmm. Pinion is about the scurrilous Tom Brady. So in your you defense, have to read it very carefully, though. To get in your that. defense, I only mentioned thirty-one of the thirty-two. The other post you made was recommendations for things to do in Toronto. So <laughs> we, number one, wanna... hate the Patriots. <laughs> <laughs> also, th- this will be the final thing about your Facebook page. For one hundred ninety-three st- straight days, your Facebook profile photo has been a image of deflated footballs. <laughs> Which is many, many orders of magnitude more than the amount of time you had the Je suis Charlie. Okay. With that Never context forget. established, let's talk about Roger Goodell's decision last week to uphold <laughs> Roger Goodell's decision to suspend Tom Brady for his role in orchestrating the deflation of footballs and for hiding evidence of the same. Brady's appeal to Goodell featured almost 10 hours of testimony, nine of which was by Steve, uh, more than 300 exhibits, and the revelation that according to the NFL, on the day he was interviewed, Brady, by the league's investigator, Ted Wells, he instructed his assistant to destroy his cell phone. In response to Goodell's not-so-shocking decision to uphold Goodell, the NFL Players Association has now filed a lawsuit in federal court to get the suspension overturned. So, Steve, you've been following this kind of off and on for, <laughs> for a little while. What do, we know, on, yeah. what do we know now that we didn't know a week ago before this latest NFL ruling came down. Uh, that Roger Goodell rivals King Solomon in wisdom and judicious neutrality. I mean, you know, I th- well, 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 the cell phone revelation is, uh, is uh, to me a big one because you throw it in with all the other circumstantial evidence. It should be said this NFL is not a court of law. Uh, Goodell is a commissioner of a sport. Uh, to that end, he answers to a variety of constituents, uh, some of whom are the fans, some of whom are the powerful TV networks, some of whom are the very powerful owners. He's treading a series of very fine lines. He's also uh, very anxious to keep his job in the face of public outcry over his uh, poor handling of the Ray Rice situation, among others. He also, it's been alleged by me and others that he has a special relationship with one owner in particular, the owner of the New England Patriots. Nonetheless, I find it very hard to come up with an interpretation by which Roger Goodell has a vendetta to prosecute against the New England Patriots. Um, You yoke that with uh, what seems to me the exhaustive nature, evidentiary nature of of the Wells report, circumstantial though it may be, it seems obvious that the footballs were intentionally deflated to make throwing, catching and running with them and not fumbling them easier for the New England Patriots. And it was done intentionally. It was done in collusion between Tom Brady and these two knuckleheads employed by the Patriots. Why did Kraft accept, uh, I think, a million dollar fine, the loss of draft picks, the immense loss of public face, if they were totally innocent? And by the way, Robert Kraft knows whether they're totally innocent or not. Tom Brady may be able to withhold from the NFL. Uh, He's not able to withhold from Robert Kraft. If Kraft really thought Brady were innocent, would he have acceded to these immense uh, fines and uh, docking of draft picks? Of course not. So we don't really know very much that's new. We only have affirmed for us what we knew all along. Well, well said. Well said. Mr. Pesca, would you like to uh, speak for the defense? Sure. I don't think that uh, Roger Goodell has any personal animus towards Mr. Kraft or Brady or the Patriots. That You don't need that. You just have to have 
incompetence. I think he was minimally competent in prosecuting this case. I just think it's been, it's overkill. It's but disproportionate. He, but he didn't prosecute it. Ted Wells prosecuted it. Right, as hired by the league office. And the fine of uh, the million dollars for Kraft, not dispositive to show that Brady was involved in the deflation. In fact, nothing really actually proves that Brady was involved more than making it known to lackeys that he liked a softer football. Lackeys, this is how the lackey superstar relationship works. They interpret this. They give the star what he wants. And you don't really have to get into that explicit uh, detail. I mean, Brady's defense that every so often he just throws his cell phone away, uh, that's ridiculous. That's risible. Yet at the same time, that doesn't mean that the league has proved that Brady was really orchestrating this. And the last thing I'd say, I just think four games is too much. I think it overall hurts the game. I think deflating footballs is definitely more of a misdemeanor than the crime. And when they say it's not the crime, but the cover up that I don't have, I usually have sympathy for, except when the prosecution is a little bit out of control. Not that it's a witch hunt, but it all started with a leak that was not on the up and up. And the Wells report certainly has a number of details that really, I think plausibly can be argued with, like the fact that the very umpire who was testing the balls got the balls wrong and there was a broken gauge. I mean, this isn't smoke and mirrors. This was, there were real details wrong with the Wells report. I just think two games for the best player in the game is a little bit more in line with the crime. Four games is more in line with Roger Goodell wanting to be an emperor. Well, first, let me say, Josh, I really sincerely hope you were not planning on speaking during this segment. (laughs) I was but, going um, to uh, just invite you to continue speaking. That's that was that, <laughs> that was my speaking part. But go ahead, Mike. Uh, first of all, I cannot believe what a turncoat you are to your um, Jets uh, uh, allegiance. This is very, very benefit. No, don't you understand? Benedict this is like Le- this you. is like Lieberman getting credibility during the impeachment. You know, I'm going to get <laughs> nominated to be Jets vice president based on the fact that I work across the aisle to also uh, dig the Patriots or defend them the brady suspension needs some context which is and and it was within explicitly within that context that goodell handed out this punishment which was after spygate goodell made it very clear that the patriots were on a kind of probation and after ray rice and after similar disciplinary issues goodell also made it clear that he's not a court of law the nfl is not the united states government. Uh, It doesn't need to prove things as other people need to prove things. It needs to uphold the integrity of the sport. And um, due process plays a a role in that, but not the only role. The Patriots have a long history here. There's a kind of Colonel Jessup paradigm that I think can apply to the organization, which is when we like the Patriots and when we're hyping them, we say that uh, Bill Belichick knows absolutely everything, quite literally, absolutely everything that goes on in the organization and controls it. When something happens that we don't like, all of a sudden it's two guys, two knuckleheads, under the control of absolutely nobody tampering with the football that's going to be used in the AFC championship game. I would urge anybody who thinks that this is not a slam dunk case to look at the totality of the evidence, beginning with the an- pre-announced suspicion on the part of the opponent that an irregular ball was going to be used in the competition. On and on and on through the destruction of the cell phone, there's a point beyond which circumstantial evidence becomes, as you say, Mike, totally dispositive. We've long since passed that. The evidence for Brady's involvement is stronger than Mike indicates in that he had all of this communication via text and voice with Um, the equipment dude immediately after the investigation started, immediately after the championship game, when he had not, there was no record of him having any communication, either text or voice with the guy for the six months prior. And the destruction of the cell phone, I was just reading the report this morning, and I hadn't realized until reading the entire thing that, you know, Brady said it's his standard practice to destroy his cell phone, you know, in a six-month interval. So I don't know if he has like a ceremony where he throws him into a pit or something. Well, it's but weirdly he despite has a reminder having said that. that <laughs> despite having said that, he produced a previous cell phone, a cell phone that predated <laughs> the era of the like uh, de- deflated football texting cell phone, which would seem to very much uh, hurt his case, an argument that he always destroys the cell phones. And he destroyed this new one like the day that he was supposed to go 
in and uh, meet with Ted Wells. So Brady does not come out looking that great. But I wanted to ask Steve, aren't you in the position of supporting an authoritarian sports commissioner, one who would find it an affront to his power that a player who is not required to would produce his cell phone. Now, it makes Brady look incredibly guilty that he would destroy it. But why are you, you know, taking in the lesser of two evils competition here? Why do you see Brady as somehow more deserving of punishment here? Okay, well, in weighing evils against one another, Josh, let me be absolutely plain about this. The New England Patriots are never the lesser of two evils. (laughs) With that said, um, I do think that there are important legal and especially labor-related legal precedential issues in this case. It is possible that Brady deserves to get off on a technicality, uh, and one, I think, should separate out reputational Uh, facts and public opinion, sort of the sway and direction of public opinion from whether or not he should have been compelled to produce this cell phone. In this instance, it seems as though the request was narrowly tailored in such a way that Brady could exculpate himself. Whether Tom Brady had on his mind... I feel like there's a Patriot Act joke to be made here, but... (laughs) (laughs) That's very funny. Um, I I think Brady was in possession of exculpatory uh, evidence, and he refused to turn it over. Are we allowed to draw an inference from that? I kind of think so. If I were the lawyer for the NFL Players Association, would I have uh, urged him to exculpate himself thusly? I would absolutely not have done that. Okay, a couple things. First of all, maybe Tom Brady likes to hold on to clamshell design uh, cell phones for ironic reasons. Two, why is it that when Tom Brady destroys a cell phone, we get all upset, but when Lindsey Graham destroys a cell phone, it redounds to his .0001% spike in the polls? I think we need to ask ourselves (laughs) that. I do not think, you can't really prove, the Wells Report had these weird gauge problems, but you know, I really think it didn't. That is such a Canard. The Wells, the gauge problems were the no one had ever tried this nonsense before. So the gauge was a gauge. It was something you bought at Sports Authority. The two gauges slightly were slightly discrepant. One was broken. There was one for, gauge once was you, broken. <laughs> no, there was not a broken gauge. There was a gauge that produced a slightly different reading, but the discrepancy between the two gauges was constant. Once you hold those variables constant, it takes literally fifth grade algebra to figure out what the fucking readings of which football were. Is, There's nothing exculpatory about you, that. You know what? You're making the crooked needle argument that lawyers have long made. This is fruit from the crooked needle. One of the gauges had a crooked needle. Anyway, the whole point of me talking about the problem- <laughs> You're making that argument, not me. It had a long- Longer crooked needle. It it generated <laughs> higher readings. The needle was crooked. If the needle was crooked, then Brady was rooked. Okay, look. I think <laughs> I think he really did deflate want deflated footballs and get deflated footballs. And how much he communicated to the guys that he wanted deflated footballs. Well, Josh, in trying to hang him, you pointed out that he had no communications with those guys before the footballs were deflated. You said all the no commun- text or voice, no text or voice. Fine, but you were using that fact to hang him as compared to all the communication he had afterwards. But that fact is not an it isolation. It's with I, 99 yes, others. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I, I do think that there's such a thing as circumstantial evidence. It would more than shock me if he didn't clearly communicate somehow he liked his footballs deflated and they were deflated to a point that violated the rules. Therefore, Tom Brady and his equipment managers, however explicitly, conspired to fiddle with the equipment a bit. And in my opinion, fiddling with the equipment a bit should not penalize you a quarter of the season. And if it wasn't Brady, if this was some... I just think if it was some up-and-coming team or if it was some team where you would say, well, it doesn't matter if they lose four games. They're definitely making the playoffs and probably the Super Bowl. There'd be a bigger hue and cry. It just seems disproportionate fiddling with the equipment. So, but let, Can and- I ask a question? I'm really curious to hear both of your answers. Is your sense, as people who watch this probably somewhat more closely than I do, is your sense that there's an aura of guilt around the New England Patriots that now brings them in for harsher penalties, for peccadilloes. And to put a finer point on it, is your sense that the that there are rumors swirling around the league about the extent of their 
you know, deception in creating this culture of unremitting winning, which drives the rest of us crazy? Um, or is it simply a guilt by association and it's it's massively exaggerated? Do you have any basis for? Well, I think there have definitely been things that have happened in the league in the last couple of years that if the Patriots had done them, to Mike's point, it would have been a much bigger deal and people would have assumed that it was part of a um, larger conspiracy to game the rules. So teams warming footballs on the sidelines, a, a general manager texting down to the sidelines, a team piping in crowd noise. These are all things that non-Patriots teams have done in the last couple of years, and the NFL has either suspended or sanctioned somehow those other teams. But, you know, I don't think people think that the Browns or the Falcons or the Panthers are dirty organizations or that necessarily gave them a competitive advantage on the field. Um, the, in 2009, the NFL suspended a New York Jets employee for, quote, attempting to use unapproved equipment to prep the K-balls before a game against the Patriots. But the NFL did not investigate Jets kicker Jay Feely because why right. would the kicker have anything to do? Why would you assume that the kicker would instruct the guy preparing the K-balls. But, you know, if that had been Adam Vinatieri or Steven Guskowski, we would be making a huge deal of it. Right. And to quote another great but, but, Bostonian, but, Stephen, when you were talking about the Aura or the Peccadillos or the Farrago, I'm sure you didn't say Farrago. But <laughs> I think that, you know, there's proof and there's not proof. And we attend to the misdeeds of the Patriots because they have been successful. And if it was the victim here who was the perpetrator, if it was Andrew Luck and the Colts, they're just, it just wouldn't make sense to us. There'd be no narrative of cheating to win. You know, the narrative is he is that up and coming guy who we want to root for. And he'd maybe get a game, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, I mean, I know we have to uh, exit the segment soon, but I guess the fence that I sit on about this when I try to approach it in clean conscience with a clean conscience and not as a Jets fan is, you know, there are a lot of stories about uh, helmet headset. Uh, what do they call radi the radios and headsets going suddenly on the blink in Foxborough? They, they don't appear to be purely urban legend. There seems to be this sense that when you go to Foxborough, strange thing. Uh, strange things happen. You know, the question is, is it really sour grapes and a bunch of innuendo on the part of the rest of the league in the face of a franchise that just can't seem to find a way to lose with this quarterback and this coach? Or is it is it that there are things we only barely know about? I mean, and I think the larger question is when in the in the arc of a cheating scandal does the public really get to begin pointing an accusatory finger. I mean, there were years where one could have said things about Lance Armstrong and a defender could have rightly said, how do you know? You don't know. That's so unfair. That's so ad hominem. That's you're jumping the gun. That's really, um, you know, slander, really. And I feel I, f I feel like we're in an interesting moment in the history of Patriot scandals where they're either going to recede <laughs> in part because these guys retire or where the iceberg starts to come above the surface. So, you know, well, we hope knows. to have you on to talk about uh, more Patriot scandals for years and years to come. <laughs> My Michael McCann in Sports Illustrated um, made a pretty convincing argument. Maybe we can end it here that in the Ray Rice case and Adrian Peterson case, both of which were overturned, there are pretty clear um, reasons to do that overturning. With the Rice case, it was uh, a double jeopardy situation. With the Peterson case, he was being punished with a rule that wasn't in place when he had committed the infraction that he committed. With the uh, Brady situation, there's nothing nearly so clear. And in the federal court, they'll be talking about process, um, how the NFL went about making the suspension and making an argument about timeliness. But it just seems like a pretty weak case. Um, at least I was convinced by McCann's piece that it was a weak case. Um, so we'll be looking at that um, going forward. The NFLPA is arguing that they delayed, Goodell delayed making this ruling so as not to give them that much time before the season to make an appeal to the court, in which case, clever move, Roger Goodell. Clever move. Um, let's talk about the Mets. On uh, July 23rd, the New York Mets started their longest homestand of the second half of the season. In that first game, the Mets, who have scored the fewest runs in all of Major League Baseball, were nearly no hit by the Dodgers' Clayton Kershaw. The next day, the Mets finally called up their top-hitting prospect, Michael Conforto, and lost again, scoring just two runs. The next game, Conforto got four hits. The Mets won 15-2. They ended Zach Greinke's scoreless streak at 45 and two-thirds innings. 
Uh, Noah Syndergaard nearly threw a perfect game. Mets win three in a row. Then the next night, reported by the Mets' own website that the team had traded shortstop Wilmer Flores and pitcher Zach Wheeler to the Brewers for outfielder Carlos Gomez, leading Flores to cry on the field during a Mets loss. After the game, Mets GM Sandy Alderson says the trade for Gomez had not happened and would never happen. Then the Mets blew a 7-1 lead the next day, lost on a Justin Upton homer in the ninth inning, fall three games behind the Washington Nationals. Mike, Josh, and Steve discuss having a Mets shit show segment on the upcoming podcast. (laughs) And then the Mets sweep the Nationals three games over the weekend. Now tied for first place, trade for Jonas Cespedes. The Mets uh, players are now talking about what a great franchise they play for. The Mets fans are exuberant, and they might even be rationally exuberant. Mm -hmm. Only 14 of the team's last 57 games are against better than 500 teams. What a what a ten days for the Mets and Mets fandom, Mike. Yes, Friday, and then and then there was that giant rain delay game where they had a uh, large lead in the ninth, and then the monsoons came and they gave it all away. The different that was Thursday. So over the weekend, meaning the Nats sweep, they went from and and the announcers were talking about this on ESPN. It seems like Thursday was a month ago, and they changed their fortunes around. And this is the great thing that you could do by sweeping the team that you were in direct competition with. And the thing they did not only only is Cespedes the bat that they've needed, becoming by far the best hitter on the team, elevating everyone, helping Lucas Duda, a streaky play. Do you know that Cespedes had eight right-handed home runs in July, and all of the Mets had six? One was by Matt Harvey, so the position players had five. One was by Juan Uribe, who wasn't even on the team a week ago. So the the long-serving Mets had four. This is a great upgrade. He's excellent at defense, and it should shows you know when the when the gomez thing went through you're like i just see no evidence that to contradict the theory that they're never going to spend on a bat they'll just not spend on a bat the Wilpons have no money uh, madoff took their money it's just all been a house of lies and they spent on P- cespedes they didn't give up one of their uh, best pitchers they they didn't give up um zach wheeler they gave up uh, fulmer from double a so it just so all these symbolic things happen and they coincide with the best set of actual facts a three-game sweep of the nationals it's very exciting um steve the mets have in recent years been kind of half of a dysfunctional franchise. Mets fans who like to play up how long suffering they are have, you know, I think talk about it like it's a totally incompetent, unsuccessful franchise. But this is a team that has managed to build up the best young pitching staff in baseball and has managed to accumulate a little bit of hitting talent as well. The issue has been ownership's unwillingness and inability to spend um, in a book called Baseball Maverick about Sandy Alderson, he admits that the team has not um, been able to spend money on anything because of the Madoff stuff. And that Carlos Gomez trade, which there's been a huge amount of contradictory reporting, but the thing that's most convincing is that the Mets tried to get the Brewers to give them money to take a really good player. um, And that's what scuttled it. So it, it seems to me that really nothing is that different after this weekend. The pitchers pitched really well. They did spend a tiny amount of money to get Cespedes just for a couple of months. But this continues to be a franchise that's been great with the talent accumulation for young players and is just not willing to spend any money. Yeah. Well, this this is how bad uh, – I mean, I agree with most of that. I, this is how bad it's gotten with the Mets. I I heard a theory floated online that, that the David Wright injury – uh, David Wright is their starting third baseman, was at one point pretty much a perennial all-star, arguably the best third baseman in the National League, at least. Uh, he's been a mysterious player over the last several years. One year, he'll be the shell of his former self. I mean, literally a player that you know can scarcely hit 10 home runs. The next year, he'll return somewhat to form without ever really being excellent, truly excellent again. He went out with an injury very early on in the season, right around the tail end or, or right after their 11-game winning streak that gave fans hope. And it dragged on for weeks. There was no clear answer as to why he wasn't returning to baseball activities. It turned out he has spinal stenosis. This is a condition uh, that's permanent. It will stay with him uh, on an ongoing basis. It's unclear whether a regime of shots and therapy will make him the player that he used to be. Um, the theory I heard hazarded online was that, 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 that in fact, this injury was 
faked and prolonged in order to have the insurance policy for David Wright finally kick in for them to reclaim some X percentage of his very large salary and then to spend that at the trade deadline on Cespedes. I mean, this is this is the this is how deep into the mouth of the gift horse um, Mets fans <laughs> now look. There's this disbelief they spent even the relatively paltry amount of money they did on Cespedes. But Cespedes is the right player. He's the right player at the right time. As Mike says, he's got majestic power. They charted his 19 home runs, I believe, that he had previously and and discovered that that at their distance they would have all gone out in city field a notoriously cavernous park oh, hard to hit home runs in i think their fortunes really have changed i mean the, the interesting thing about the mets is their young pitching is so good and and on the verge of being historic that if you can somehow crawl to into the playoffs even if you get there with 86 wins and because the nats implode um at that moment your chances of winning the World Series with Harvey, DeGrom, Syndergaard, possibly Mats, and even Nice, who's pitched beautifully, uh, your chances of winning the World Series are even with anybody's, even the Dodgers. I absolutely believe that. So they're in this funny position where their offense is execrable. If they can just squeak out enough runs for the you know truly majestic pitching, you know they could kind of go go anywhere. But what Mike, I'm curious, Wilmer Flores is he going to be the fairytale ending mascot to end all fairytale ending mascots or is he going to end up a millstone because he's going to boot a grounder in game 159 and uh we're going to go on to lose the division i, I did forget to run. mention that he hit the game winning <laughs> homer on friday after crying on the field two days pri- prior yes i uh, i don't think he's going to be the goat that that did it i mean that was his arc now he can safely be uh whatever happened to wilmer flores story so the Mets are actually still in second place. The Nationals have a .5242 winning percentage, whereas the Mets have a .5238. So that it'll show up in your box score as .524, but don't be fooled. The Mets need that game. Right now, uh, MLB says the Mets have a uh, 49% chance of making the playoffs. That's from the baseball prospectus stats. Now, just, I want you to know three days ago, it was a 31% chance. So it went from 31 to 44 on that site. Fangraphs calculates it differently and worse for the Mets, whereas I checked before the trades were made in the Nats series, the Mets were at 24 overall for the playoffs, and now they're at 36.8% for the playoffs. So neither site says still at this point that they're like, Likely to make the playoffs. Well, here's the the thing with the Mets that makes them so confounding to me this season. Steve's analysis is exactly right about the young pitching and the execrable offense. And it's not, you know, Steve did not have to devote his considerable intellectual might to making that observation. A uh, four year old <laughs> could have noted that, and I'm sure the Mets. Thank you, Josh. I'm sure that. Well, you know, I I'm just calling a spade a spade here. Anybody, everybody knew, including the Mets front office. And that just makes you think, this. these owners must be broke as fuck. I mean, it's so obvious that all they've needed all season is a little bit more hitting. Because, as you said, if they just barely squeak into the playoffs, they will be a really hard team to beat. And so it's just incredibly short-sighted, you would think. Because you see all the goodwill that's just poured out of the fan base, the the starved fan base, just over these last three days when they're still in second place. So if you can actually put together a semi-competent offense, one that's about league average. I, I wouldn't go too far with the second place. I mean, they just swept their rival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and but, I don't know. but it's not but like, wait, it's not wait, like they have a five-game lead in the division no, or anything course, like that. No, of course not. And no, no one wants them to have a five-game lead. We, <laughs> but, you know, but it, neck we, and neck is, uh, in the early August is fine. We still own Sandy the question, Yes. Is who should they have spent? I agree with you. They are not spending money in a way that's unconscionable and really an insult to fans. But who should they have spent money on? What if they've well, gotten Troy Cano? You think the reason they didn't acquire Tulowitzki was purely money? I think that— Well, look, what? Kelly Johnson and, and Juan Uribe, they acquired them a week before the trade deadline, and Johnson was making, like, some very limited amount of money. And they had the Braves kick in, like, a million dollars to help pay for that contract. Those guys were traded earlier this year from the Braves to the Dodgers— the Mets could have gotten them in May and had two months more yeah, of just but, like but, very. But, I, th- these guys are not expensive, but they're still better than whatever the Mets have. 
I guess so, but at that point, did you know you were going to get a buck eighty out of Campbell and Mayberry? I mean, I don't, I don't really know that you did. I think the bigger issue is for in the Tulowitzki situation is would you have parted with Matt to get him? Would you have parted with Syndergaard to get him? I think the answer is no. I don't know that they had a great asset to give them to get Tulowitzki back. I don't know. That's subjective. I think that w- beyond what Josh pointed to, which is a good point, their machinations with Michael Kadire, who, sure, he hit 332 and 331 with the Rockies, but he's hitting 250 this year and he has a slugging percentage of three. He's having an awful season. And it's clear that he's been hurt and they didn't put him on the DL just because, I don't know, squeezing a drop of power. Yes, even a hurt Kadire was better than whatever option they had. But yeah, there was. Up until Cespedes, Cespedes, no evidence that they even would, you know, do the first thing to get a little bit of offense. So now they are. But it just, my, my ma- macro point here is just that it seems short-sighted. Like if you're, if you're struggling with money, a good way to make money, the only way it's been proven over years of baseball games to have fans actively throw their money at you is to win baseball right. games. And now they're selling and out. just to not spend, Absolutely. you're just meaning that you won't make money right, for years right. And they were one batter right at that precipice. So the whatever $10 million that they had spent on one better bat would have resulted in you know $20 million and just you know, beer sales at the stadium or something. Yeah, good point. I mean, the, I got to think that they spreadsheet this out and they... I'm even more cynical than you are. I think that they they get a pretty predetermined revenue stream from TV, which dwarfs the beer sales at the stadium. If they know that if they can hold payroll to under $100 million, a- against that revenue stream, they can pay off X amount of the bonds they sold in order to l- leverage their way out of the Madoff disaster. I, I-, I think they've calculated all of this out, and, and the even more cynical interpretation is that is that the variable on the spreadsheet that says attendance that then alters the beer sale variable on the spreadsheet is weighed against spending another $12 million on a player and it doesn't come out in favor of doing it. But, you know, so they're, I mean, what are they spending roughly maybe $4 million for Cespedes the rest of the way? No doubt, Josh, you were right. It's a crumb. It's belated. It's therefore pathetic. We're starving. We will gobble it up. (laughs) And let's end it right there. Steve, uh, thank you. For joining us, um, you know that Belichick is in there working the ones and zeros on that spreadsheet, <laughs> along with uh, with Wilpon. You'd be naive to think that he wasn't. <laughs> uh, guys, this is uh, it's a, what can I say? The highlight of my morning, at least, and uh, I hope uh, <laughs> I hope to come back soon. Thank you. Okay, tagging in now for Steve Metcalf is June Thomas, a Slate culture critic the editor of Slate's LGBTQ section outward, a panelist on the X GabFest, a panelist on the new Outward podcast, and the world's leading expert on tennis player Rosie Casals. Hello, Jean. Hey, Josh Levine. If you watch the new documentary Back on Board, you'll see that enough has happened in Greg Louganis' life for at least a couple of different movies. As a 16-year-old, he won a diving silver medal at the 1976 Olympics in Montreal, Then after the U.S. boycott of the 1980 Moscow Games, Luganis won double gold medals in L.A. in 1984 and in Seoul four years later. In those 1988 Olympics, Luganis struck his head on the diving board during the prelims of the springboard competition, bleeding in the water at a time when he knew, but very few others did, that he was HIV positive. Luganis came out as gay and revealed his HIV status in the book Breaking the Surface and a 1995 interview with Oprah Winfrey. Now, 20 years later, Back on Board documents all of those episodes in Luganis's life, as well as his return to USA Diving as a mentor for young athletes and his recent fight to save his house from foreclosure. You can watch the documentary this Tuesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern on HBO. Greg Luganis, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And it was actually Barbara Walters on 2020 who broke the news. She, she aired on Friday and then Oprah aired on Monday. We got a you know double hit from some major, <laughs> major support. Well, Oprah just doesn't get enough credit in her mm-hmm. career, so I was just trying to bump her up a <laughs> this, little bit. This is forgotten the broadcaster <laughs> Oprah Winfrey. Oh Kids might not have heard Oprah about her. Yeah. Half the world, right? <laughs> um, well, Bar- the Barbara Oprah doubleheader, that's almost as impressive as double Olympic gold in 84, <laughs> 88. Yeah, there you go. The bullet points of your career, like with any Olympian, even the greatest Olympians like yourself, 
It just takes a couple of seconds to tick them off. A silver in 76, the boycott in 80, two golds in 84, two more in 88. And that's how most Americans engage with Olympians. They disappear for four uh-huh. years, in your case, eight between 76 and 84. And we expect them to come back and win just like they did the last time. And what's remarkable is that you lived up to those expectations. But what struck me about this documentary most is that while fans expected you to be the same and look the same and do the same things every time they saw you on their televisions, you were a totally different person each time in 76 and 84 and in 88. So how would you describe those differences? How were you different um, in each of your Olympic appearances? Well, in, in 1976, I mean, um, I was diving with Dr. Sammy Lee, and my sole purpose on this earth at that moment in time, I was, you know, 15, 16 training with him, you know, was to beat Klaus DiBiase to prevent Klaus from beating his record. He, he won two Olympic gold medals, 48 and 52. He uh, coached Bobby Webster, another U.S. diver, uh, to win two uh, gold medals. And then Klaus DiBiase from Italy was going for his third Olympic gold medal. So my What a great villain name, for- Klaus DiBiase, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> but he's such a sweetheart. He's just the nicest person. And, um, you know, and just an incredible talent. And so, you know, going to the 76 Olympic Games, you know, that was my goal. I mean, I took on that, that goal and responsibility and I failed. And it took many, many years before I could hold that, uh, Olympic silver medal with any type of pride because I saw it as a failure. That was, you know, from my perspective. And then, um, 80 was the boycott which we didn't have the opportunity to go. You know, in, you know, 78 and 82, I was world champion on 10-year platform. And as I understand, Kibo from China just tied my record uh, for three gold, uh, world gold medals this past weekend. So every Olympic experience was so different. 84, I felt like, I, you know, my coach, Ron O'Brien, uh, was... We were at the top of our game, and and we were prepared. And then uh, 888, you know, it was like the Chinese had caught up to me. And so I was hanging on by the skin of my teeth. And when I hit my head on the board uh, in the prelims and then three meters, I, I was going into that Olympic Games as a favorite, on favorite. But then in that split second, I became the underdog. You know, and also being diagnosed HIV positive six months prior, there was just so much going on. So it, it was it was an incredible emotional roller coaster. Do you think looking back that, I mean, that was so dramatic when you, there was blood in the water and would he gather himself and then they announced the same dive and I think it's, it was the highest scoring dive of the entire games. Just uh, in, in the world of professional wrestling, that's how they'd script it. Do you think looking back technically with the dive that some of the score was just because of the emotion of the moment or was it a technically per- perfect dive that you actually executed? I don't know. I... You know, I, I, I viewed that dive afterwards, and it was like, yeah, I was pretty technically sound. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after, especially the success in 84, uh, Mary Lou Redden, as is discussed in the documentary, she and got 15 endorsement deals, earned millions, and you really did not capitalize as much on your success. Um, and the irony here is that Olympians are essentially paid to be themselves, <laughs> that you just make a pu- public appearances, you make endorsements, and you capitalize on your fame because of people's affection mm-hmm. for you. And at the same time, I think it's fair to say that you felt that you couldn't be true to yourself. Were yeah. you aware of that at the time, that to, to capitalize on this, you needed to be some version of yourself that you weren't? Well, it was a real interesting process because I was out to my friends and family, you know, pretty early on. Um, and, you know, people in USA Diving knew about my sexual identity. Uh, it was just my policy not to discuss my personal life with members of the media. And at that, at that time, um, the reporters respected that. I mean, there was plenty to read between the lines. I mean, you could probably, you could figure it out pretty easily, but, um, I was also, I signed on with William Morse Agency uh, right after the 84 Olympic Games, and um, 
you know, their advice to me was, okay, you know, tone down the, you know, the, the gay thing, you know, and so it's like, okay, well, whatever, you know, so I'm just kind of going on what they said and, um, you know, because, you know, their feelings were that corporate America wasn't ready for that. And so, but I mean, it was rumored and, you know, people knew. So after you became one of the uh, first high-profile athletes to ca- to come out, did you become a uh, sounding board for other athletes who were closeted or who were struggling or who were mm-hmm. either m- maybe not even American athletes? I mean, American athletes probably had it, had it bad, but, you know, you look at what's going yeah. on in Russia today. I don't know if any of them could get mm-hmm. word to you, but, you know, what kind of conversations were you hearing during the 90s or aughts? Well, when I was on book tour in 95, um, I mean, I had a lot of people, you know, a lot of young young kids, you know, come to my book signings and, you know, who came out to me. And um, oftentimes they, they were in team sports and I compete in an individual sport. So, uh, you know, my concern was, uh, you know, a team sport is a team sport. You need the backing of your team to be successful unless you're like a Michael Jordan or a uh, Wayne Gretzky or somebody like that. I thought it was going to take somebody like that to come out to, you know, to really kind of pave the way. But, you know, now, you know, with, um, you know, Michael Sam's coming forward, Jason Collins, um, the, one of the athletes that I truly admire is, is Matthew Mitchum from Australia. He was the Olympic gold medalist in Beijing, and he came out while he was still competing. And so I just so admired that. You know, he didn't feel that he could compete on that high level, you know, just sharing a part of himself. And then, which made it easier for Tom Daly and, you know, uh, Robbie Rogers and, you know, so many other athletes. So, um, you know, it's, it's great to see... Uh, them embraced by their fans and and the public, you know. But it's you know the real question is okay. Are, are the corporations going to get behind them, you know, and support them? So you were criticized kind of retroactively in 1995 after you came out about your HIV status, and people were like, "Wait a second, that guy had, had blood in the pool and soul." Um, did that criticism? sting you and is there any of it that you felt like was warranted or was it all unwarranted well truly the only only people that were at risk were the two doctors who stood my head up and that was dr james puffer and dr ben rubin um because they had direct contact with the blood i didn't bleed in the pool those those types of injuries don't bleed instantly so that's where the concern was now when I was criticized and, you know, under scrutiny by the general public, I thought that was awesome because there was communication happening. I mean, it's like when I told Barbara Walters that all of the people, because people were burying their heads in the sand about HIV AIDS at that time. And so I, I, my, one of my responses to Barbara was, Anybody who cheered for me in any of the Olympics, 76 through 88, can no longer say that their lives have not been affected by HIV. You know, I think that was really great that that conversation started happening. It was, it was important for people to know how you get HIV, but it's also important to know how you don't get HIV. Okay, uh, I just want to ask one sports question. So there you are. Let's take 88. I mean, everything going on the blood, the injury, the concern about the blood and the injury, the fact that if you had disclosed HIV, you would not have been allowed in the country of South Korea. How the hell do you right. focus? It seems impossible. <laughs> you ever think, how do you focus? That was my upbringing. I mean, I've been performing. I, I started dancing acrobatics when I was a year and a half, performing on stage when I was three. So, you know, what I was taught... Uh, was, hey, the show must go on. As soon as that music starts, you know, there's no looking back. If you, you know, lose your place, you got to catch up. You don't get it. You don't get second chances. So 
it was easy for me to com- kind of compartmentalize my life because I had done so for so many years. You know, and we get good at what we practice, and that's something that I practiced a lot. Greg, I'm wondering, how do you feel about synchronized diving? I mean, I'm sort of thinking that, you know, someone from your era who wasn't didn't have that opportunity to, you know, earn more gold medals. Or do you think, yeah. given that you were doing both platform and springboard, do you think you would have had time to do synchronized? Yeah, you know, it would it really would have been a challenging schedule. But you know, I think, I, shoot, I would have gone. I would have gone for it. <laughs> Um, you know, and every, of course, everybody says, well, who would your synchro partner be? Well, early in my career, I would have to say, and this is an obscure name, nobody knows, is Jim Gray, who was a teammate of mine. We had very similar styles of diving. Later in my career, I would probably, you know, say Kent Ferguson, because we also had very similar style of diving. He's a bit taller than me, but, um, you know, I think that we could have been wonderful synchro partners. So, um... And then it's funny because, like, Matt Scoggin said, oh, we would have been great on platform together. So, I mean, it was, you know, who knows? <laughs> I, don't, I don't look back and say, well, what if, what if, what if? But, um, yeah, it's kind of fun to imagine who I might partner with. <laughs> Final question. Um, looking more to the, f- to the future, would you be willing to make an Olympic co- uh, comeback if dog, ag- <laughs> if dog agility was added to the Olympics? The dog agility oh, competition. for it. You would go Are for you it. Kidding? That would be like so awesome. I just have one dog now. Uh, I lost Nipper last year in Griff, but I still have Dobby. He's fourteen and a half, and uh, my husband and I have been talking about getting another puppy. And so we're kind of on the fence of which direction we're going to go, you know. And that's my goal with my next dog is to make world team. <laughs> So, um, no, I'd love to see, you know, dog agility in the Olympics. Do you hear that, IOC? We've got to get Luganus back in the Olympics. <laughs> you might finally get your Wheaties box. <laughs> oh, my God. It's not your Alpo. One or the other. crazy or what? <laughs> Greg Luganus, thank you so much. And everybody should check out Back on Board, the new documentary about Greg's life, Tuesday night, 10 p.m. on HBO. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, thank you so much. Now it is time for After Balls. Uh, June, you need to be honored today. I do. Oh, you do. Every day. I do. Every day day you need to be honored by all who know you. But today in particular, I want to honor your Olympics super fandom. In years past, is this true or false, you would temporarily relocate to Canada so you could watch the Olympics on CBC? Yes, although now CBC no longer airs the Olympics. It's it's caused a crisis. (laughs) An international crisis. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but to make you feel at home, I'm going to name these afterballs after Ron McLean. <gasps> Is he one of your favorites? Well, you know, now I must have <laughs> seen him on the hockey, but uh, a great Canadian, great Canadian sportscaster. He's been on an Olympic host. On, uh, he started in 88, so he was there for Luganis's uh, last two golds. Um, he is the longtime host of Hockey Night in Canada, and he is also a hockey referee. So this man is definitely Canadian. Wow. You cannot take his Canadianness away from him. And he Mike. likes to pay for things in dollar coins. Sorry. <laughs> Loonies. <laughs> is a loony a dollar or two? No, loony is one dollar. Toonie is two. Toonie. Right, yeah. Toonie. They're tiny. They're toonie. They're all a little loony. Hey, I just, that, was, that was good. Yeah. That was, that was, that was good. great. Um Mike, what is your Ron McLean? So we talk with Greg Luganis about focus. You know, these days, Jen Welter, she's hired by the Arizona Cardinals. Will she be a distraction? Michael Sam, such a distraction. We're talking about guys who have to, you know, in the instant play against a defense that has a false front and all of a sudden there's two guys blitzing from the weak side and yet some woman in the locker room, a coach, (laughs) not just some woman, a qualified coach, will be a distraction. So I was thinking about distraction. I talked about this on uh, NPR this weekend and I thought of a person to talk to it with and it's the sports writer Jeff Perlman who, here are his qualifications to talk to me about distraction. One, wrote a book about Roger Clemens, a guy who was so distracted and yet was excellent. Two, wrote a book about Barry 
Barry Bonds, a guy who was so distracted by hype and yet not distracted at all. Wrote about the 86 Mets. Distraction did not prevent them from winning a world championship. Wrote about the Dallas Cowboys of the Irvin Emmett Smith, Troy Aikman era. And also broke the story about John Rocker that so distracted the Braves, that John Rocker being a racist, so distracted the Braves the next season that they won whatever uh, the NL East for, I don't know, whatever, the seventh straight time. So here's some of that conversation between me and Perlman. I just think generally, like, to be an athlete at a very high level, at a professional level, you're hyper-focused. You've played through a lot of things from injuries to family illnesses to death to whatever. Um, and what you are really focused on is your own performance and your own well-being. So if the guy next to you is arrested, well, it's not gonna, you're not going to be thinking about that when you're in the box hitting or when you're taking snaps from center. It, it's just something that happens. Bond is the best example. He's probably the best example out there. The guy was always catching grief from people. He was hated. He was booed. He was accused of using PEDs. And the guy just didn't care. You know, he was, he's probably the best. I, I tell you, I criticize Bonds a lot. I have through the years. But to his credit, I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever seen an athlete so able to lock in and to not worry about anything going on in his life. Not only to not worry, but to not care about it. Like, he legitimately did not care about what was going on around him, um, whether it was great, whether it was awful, whether an article came out that praised him, whether an article came out that accused him. He just didn't care. He was, it, was, it was impossible to distract him from being a good baseball player. That's it. Okay. June, what is your Ron McLean? Josh, if I made a list of my favorite things in life, the gays and the Olympics would be really high up there. And so speaking with Greg Luganis, of course, made me think of the great 1982 movie, Personal Best. Now, I have very fond memories of seeing it when it first came out because I'm very old. I saw it on several consecutive nights when it played at the State Theater in Newark, Delaware, in a double feature with Body Heat. So I always kind of associate the 1980 non-Olympics with Kathleen Turner and William Hurt in this very confused <laughs> if, thing in my head. If we're making a movie of this afterball, this is going to be a great montage sequence. Right. Going to see Personal Best on like 48 consecutive nights. It was more like three, but still. <laughs> but I hadn't seen this movie in many years, so I rewatched it this weekend, and it wasn't at all as I remembered it. So Personal Best was, of course, the story of two elite track and field athletes, Chris Cahill, played by Mariel Hemingway, the great Mariel Hemingway, and Tori Skinner, played by Patrice Donnelly, who was a former world-class pentathlete. And in the movie, Chris and Tori, who were both coached by Scott Glenn's Terry Tingloff, who looks a lot like Greg Luganis's coach, Ron O'Brien, uh, they become lovers. That's Tori and Chris, not Tori and Tingloff. Um, and rivals in the pentathlon. And I have to admit that the bits of the movie that were about the relationship between Chris and Tori were really all that I remembered. And in my recollection, it was about 80% those two tickling each other and like 20% sports. But in actuality, only about 15% of the movie involves naked tickling and 85% is sports. And it's kind of an amazing sports movie. Robert Town, who was the writer, director and producer, he didn't have much of a sports background as far as I was able to find out, but at the time he was known as a screenwriter and he had some big credits like Chinatown and Shampoo. And it's true that his first time direction does have a lot of shots of female athletes' bodies, but they are at least usually in motion. Um, and he's also very aware of the sort of comfort level that athletes have with nakedness and with the precise regime that they need to follow to stay in shape. And in the movie, there's a huge amount of languor, like the movie reproduces the aspect of sports where there's like endless preparation and training and a lot of waiting around and then suddenly a very short burst of activity that's the very thing that you spent all those thousands of hours working toward. And I remember at the time being annoyed that, spoiler alert, the relationship between Chris and Tori doesn't last and Chris ends up with a guy. And I remember mumbling that, of course, that's what a movie made by a man would that's how he would have it work out. But on reflection, it's handled pretty well. And the conflict of the movie is really about whether you can really love and trust a rival when only one person can win the gold medal. Except, of course, that there wasn't a gold medal that year because at the beginning of the film, some athletes go to the Montreal Games, but Chris isn't old enough. Um, and then the rest of the movie is all about preparing for Moscow. And then, of course, the boycott comes. And so the Olympic trials essentially become their Olympics, except, of course, 
that they aren't. Um, there's some weird aspects to the film. Um, whenever any of the characters tell jokes, they always seem to be racist or homophobic, which is kind of <laughs> odd. And it's an overwhelmingly white group of athletes. And when the coach makes a sexual move on one of the athletes under his care, the film doesn't make it all that clear that that's a terrible breach of trust. There's some really perceptive stuff about the single-mindedness of athletes and the life-changing impact of an injury and how much it just physically hurts to be injured. And we get to see athletic competition from both the inside, kind of the athlete's point of view, and from a TV commentator's point of view. And there's quite a few elite athletes of this period in the movie. There's a frank discussion of drugs, both performance-enhancing and recreational. Uh, It passes the Bechdel test, and the climax of the movie is a really refreshing change from the typical sports movie big finale. So while it's not the great gay movie that I remembered, it's a really outstanding sports film that definitely deserves a second look. Also, all the haters can suck it because Mariel Hemingway is awesome. You know what I remember from that movie? Well, a scene about uh, her wondering what it's like to pee standing up. Yeah, I and, <laughs> that, and that's what I remember. Yeah, I and I remembered that scene too, and it kind of goes on a bit. Yeah, and yeah. like we also see some penis, like which to, spelt weird. Yeah, what's it like to pee standing up? If you really have to pee. <laughs> I'm I'm looking forward to June's syndicated movie review TV show where <laughs> the trademark instead of. The thumbs up is at the end her saying everyone can suck it. <laughs> <laughs> it's Mario, it'll be a just Mario Hemingway movies. Also, so what would, I be the just thumb, wanted... what would be the thumbs down? And only selected individuals can <laughs> suck it. I can't quite get a, give it a suck it. Lovers can suck it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also just wanted to throw in the line, forget it, June. It's written by the guy who wrote Chinatown. <laughs> Josh, what's your Ron McLean this week? My Ron McLean this week and every week, every week that we have a Ron McLean, I always talk about how I have a, a digital projector. And since you're here, June, since we had Steve on earlier, I wanted to do a Culture Gabfest style endorsement, Ooh. which is the projector. So I first got a projector in 2007, just in time to see the Saints lose in larger-than-life fashion in the NFC Championship game. I've had the same projector for eight and a half years until a couple weeks ago, the bulb in the projector exploded. (laughs) And one's reaction to this naturally is to immediately go out and buy a new projector, which was delivered a day or two later. I'm very attached to the projector. And I think people don't appreciate or understand the fact that the projector is attainable by all. And here are the uh, bullet points in favor of projector ownership. The obvious one is that the picture is very large and very sharp. The picture and the one that we have, it's like 100 or 110 inches <laughs> diagonally. Pesca's seen it. It's yeah. pretty damn large and yeah. impressive. It made it made uh, a pretty unimpressive, I think, NCAA tournament play-in game seem to have huge stakes. <laughs> <laughs> and that leads directly into point number two. People will come over to your house and visit you <laughs> if you have a projector. They'll, They'll be willing to come to your six house. six flights of stairs isn't, to get there in your house, Josh. Isn't that a con? That would be a con for me. It's, you can not tell particular people that you, that you have a projector. <laughs> you can point. just keep that uh, you know, on a need-to-know basis. Mm-hmm. So it makes regular television into appointment viewing. And that then leads into number three, which might actually be a negative for June because I know you're the world's leading fan of television. Mm-hmm. But for me, it sets a higher bar for actually turning it on and watching things. So I feel like it decreases my TV consumption in a way that I find pleasing. And it's not a very large object. It's very small. It sits on a table in the corner of uh, our house. And as TVs get flatter and wider, they take up a more sizable footprint in your home. And so this is a way to have a big television without it actually being a giant object that dominates your space when you're not watching it. The new projector that that I bought was a BenQ HT 1075 for all you projector junkies out there. It cost about 800 bucks. The previous one I had was a Mitsubishi HD1000U, which cost around the same when I got it. You can get them cheaper, but I couldn't recommend it more highly. And every time that uh, people come over, it is created, you know, like how they say that Velvet Underground just started all these new bands. Not that many people listen to them. Right. But everybody who did started a band. Everybody yes. who comes over and watches stuff on a projector immediately goes out and buys a projector. Can I ask some really basic questions? Because I've I've never actually seen a projector in person. 
How does it work? I don't get it. <laughs> What's a projector? You push a button, and then light comes out of this box. But where's and then the TV it's up on picture the come from? You plug it into your cable box or your. Oh. Uh, yeah, I also have a Chromecast, and you can stream shit directly to it, like from the internet. The screen. The screen. Um, I've got a shit. DVD player plugged up in there. Wow. So. Wow. We'll talk after the show. All anybody, right. anybody who wants to talk about this, just. Uh, Post on our Facebook page. And then Gene, next- we'll, Gene will get back to you. <laughs> All right, we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Thanks to Steve Metcalf and June Thomas for sitting in today. Zach Dinerstein edited and produced today's show. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.